0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the 94 Feet Report NBA Podcast. We have finally, finally returned. Uh, We're recording on June 16th and uh, I think uh, Corbin and I were talking before we started recording. The last episode was like March 25th or 26th. It's been a long time, but we are back. Corbin, how are you doing tonight?
1: hey i am doing good eric we are back i am hype this this is the pinnacle right here
0: (laughs) (laughs) this is this is the one of the peak times of the nba season we're hitting the off season we've got like four five days or so until the nba draft um and then you know july 1st free agency kicks off it's you know we all know you know hell's gonna break loose uh starting july 1st um so we're back and we decided we're gonna split this episode up into two different little segments the first segment um which some of you might have seen on twitter is we asked for some questions for an off-season focused mailbag and we got a couple of good questions that we're going to talk about um and then afterwards we're going to bring on alex west uh of the 94 feet report um and he is going to uh, help us analyze the draft um get everyone ready for thursday talk about the the you know, the top prospects, some underrated prospects, what certain teams could do at certain picks and everything like that. So that'll be in the second half of the show. But let's get started right away with this uh, mailbag p- question. And the first question that we got um, was from Twitter user at Headband Brother. Um, and it uh, says, what lower tier free agents should the Rockets target to fill out the team if they have to let guys like Ariza and Capella go in favor of getting LeBron? Um, And in parentheses, it says guys like Anthony Tolliver are who I mean. Um, So first, let's clear one thing up, is that regardless of if they get LeBron James or not, the Rockets are going to keep Clint Capella. I mean, maybe in some crazy scenario, you know, they trade him away in a sign-and-trade or something like that. But all indications are that regardless of if they get LeBron James or if they just kind of have to bring back the same team, they are going to bring back Clint Capella um, even if it takes, you know, a max contract, if it's another team offers him that, or they just give it to him right away. Um, Trevor Ariza, the report—I think the report came out today or yesterday—that he's looking for fifty to sixty million dollars in his next contract, and there's no team in the NBA that's going to even <laughs> think about offering that, offering him that. I mean, it's probably some kind of smokescreen from his agent or something like that. But um, there, let's say they did get LeBron, and I still think there's, you know, probably less than like forty percent chance that happens at this point. Um, yeah, Ariza would be gone, especially if he's asking for anywhere close to that money. The only way Ariza could come back in that situation is if he literally took the veteran's minimum or something. Um or like maybe like mid level exception, which he probably wouldn't do, but you know, maybe he does if he wants to win. Um but to really get to the, the meat of the question is is like what lower tier guys should the Rockets look for to target to fill out the team if they get LeBron. Anthony Tolliver, I actually think, is a great name for this. I also think that just trying to bring back Luke Mbamute and or Gerald Green, um, you know, for veterans minimum, uh, mid-level exceptions, whatever they want, um, you know, I think that'd be a great idea. I mean, both were good in their role. Mbamute had a great regular season, and it's kind of a shame that his, his playoffs were trash because he was injured. Um, he would be great to bring back to this team for a depth, another defender, um, but regardless of if they get LeBron James, I think the Rockets also need another guard. Um, so a guy like Raymond Felton or Jameer Nelson, just someone who can, you know, play ten minutes a game here or there. They should rest Chris Paul and James Harden, you know, more next season. Obviously, Paul was hurt last year, but if you know if he somehow stays healthy next year, they should rest him for like ten games anyways. James Harden, the same thing. Get you know he had a higher usage this year than he did the the previous year, um, and he didn't wear down as much of the playoffs because he had Chris Paul. But still, you want to make sure he's fresh. So having a guard. Um, you know, a cheap guard like Felton or Nelson could fit in. And, you know, again, T- Anthony Tolliver bringing back Mbamute, Joel Green. Um, those guards, those are, you know, the lower tier free agents or that kind of player or players that the Rockets have to look for if they get LeBron James. If not, you know, bringing back those guys anyways, Mbamute, Joel Green, and adding a, a veteran guard is also what they should be do- looking to do this off-season.
1: I'm right there with you. I, I was thinking about that a little early, and I was like, wouldn't it be cool to bring in some old – NBA War Dogs, you know, 41-year-old, half-man, um, occasionally amazing Vince Carter. <laughs> That'll be interesting. Um, I really was thinking about Richard Jefferson as well, although I do get worried when you bring in order players, especially on a, a championship team that, you know, when they when they come in, you don't want to make sure they're not breaking down. I mean, Vince Carter, like I said, 41, Richard Jefferson 37 going on 38. Like, that, they're, they're still semi-productive, but... I don't know if the quality is there. And then if they are forced to play heavy minutes in the wake of an injury, are you really sure that you want to give that to them? So that, that you know, started to sour on me a little bit. Ideally, you would want Bamute back. As you said, the playoffs were, you know, a little bit of a different story because of the injury, but he was really solid in the regular season. Um, I was high on Joe Green. I think there were certain games, um, there was one against Orlando, um, and the other one they lost against Golden State, where he came out of nowhere and provided, what, 30-plus 30, 30 points. You know, and to have someone that has the um potential to still do that occasionally is great. At point guard, I really agree with, with Jameer Nelson. I thought he'll be just the kind of, you know, he's 36, a little older. um Just kind of guard Houston would like, though, in spots where he's great with the pick and roll, um, a solid three-point shooter, and would fit right in, in that respect. I also thought about taking a fly on Mario Chalmers. You know, if you bring LeBron, he's, he's he's LeBron's, you know, former point guard. You know, he can shoot threes. He kind of was rotting away in Memphis, but he did work hard to come back from the ACL tear, so... You know he's there, and at 32 he's on the youngish side of free agent guards. Um, but yeah, that, those are some pieces. Jamal Crawford would be interesting. I don't know if uh, Houston needs him or how he'd fit coming off the bench. But as far as like another shooter, he's kind of inefficient as a spot up three point shooter, but he can shoot it, and he can also be a, a secondary playmaker and um, ball handler. And I'm sure that would come in handy when you know you reach a spot where you need more playmakers to, to play on the floor. You know, defensively is always the issue with Jamal, but at least offensively brings more firepower in that regard. So. Those are just some that I thought about that were interesting. Ian Clark too, you know, just some of those wings.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I think like when you're talking about these kind of players, like I don't want to say you can't go wrong with them because they play such a small role, but you know, if you were to sign someone and they don't really work out, you don't. It's not a huge, you know, miss. Like it's not a big deal because you're signing a, uh, maybe like a. 11th man on the on the team maybe um maybe 10th 9th depending on injuries or if they can move up or whatever but i think yeah some of the names you mentioned they really just need a veteran guard um and this is regardless of getting lebron james they need a veteran guard that just has to happen um and those guys would probably take the veterans minimum at this point especially if they want to win um and the rockets present one of like the top three or four chances to win in the nba right now um uh, so those that has to happen regardless. I think trying to bring back Mabamute and or Gerald Green, I'd prefer Mabamute, that also should be trying to happen as well, regardless of LeBron. Um, and other than that, I mean, you know, you swing for LeBron, you swing for a guy like Paul George. If that doesn't happen, I think you basically try and bring back the same team. Not Trevor Ariza if he wants. If you only take 50 to 60 million, you let that guy walk because no way you're paying that guy that much (laughs) money. Um, But you try. If you don't get LeBron, you're trying back to bring back the same team and add a veteran guard or maybe replace one of the the wings with someone a little bit younger because this team is really you know pretty old. Um, And then. Uh, if you get LeBron, you try and get – you still get that veteran guard. You still get some other guy that wants to win for the minimum, and you move on. And, and moving on will be exactly what we'll be doing to the next question. No one wants to hear about Rocket's 11th man on Great June transition. 16th. <laughs> um, but let's get to what I think is one of the most interesting mailbag questions that we got and one that we'll also talk with Alex later on in the show. But we'll talk about it a little bit ourselves here. This is from our own Josh Cornellison of the 94 Feet Report uh, and Hoops Habit. Um, He says, many of the top draft prospects are centers, but the modern NBA seems to be marginalizing the position. Can a team win a title in the 2020s with a center as their best player? How should the answer to that question influence the top 10 of the draft? Um, And I'll let you get started with this question since I started on the last one.
1: This was, shout out to Josh, a very interesting question. I I don't know, the modern NBA, I think the position is, is marginalized because they're being put in different molds. You have the rim running, kind of big, who can rebound and, and be a force around the basket area, but can't hit a jump shot or space the floor. And you have the jump shooting centers who can come in and space the floor, um, pick and pops, you know, offensively, they work in that way, but they don't really bring anything really on the defensive end, or they can be overpowered, you know, on the defensive end, little to no game, back to the basket-wise. Or you have those that, I mean, like a DeMarcus Cousins or Anthony Davis, where they can kind of do it all. But they're playing together, and that kind of mitigates both their effectiveness, as we saw kind of through most of the season with the Pelicans. So I, it's rough because I think that a team could win a talent 2020 with the center's best player. I just think that all their other players have to be at least competent. You know, you're not having the center lead the way a la, you know, Tim Duncan, David Robinson, the 1999 Spurs team where Avery Johnson was a point guard and could hit anything outside of the foul line. Jump shot wise, you know, no spacing, none of that. That that that's not gonna work in this modern NBA. I think you need to have, you know, players like we do see coming this draft, where I would say a DeAndre Ayton or a Mobamba, where they are, you know, big athletic, um, big men who can basically roll to the rim, um, be a force defensively, be a terror in transition, but are working on that jump shot, you know, from 15 feet to the three point line, so they can also attack in that way because having a person that size and being able to have a expanded skill set causes problems just in general if you had a big who can be the offensive fulcrum of your team and also not get fouled on the other end and stay strong and protect the rim and offensively pick your poison because he can pick and roll he can pick and pop um there's a variety of ways he can attack you on that end I think that's pretty hard to beat And, and, and you know obviously as modern NBA we're going to multiple playmakers and five out and, you know, the the DeAndre Ayton or Luka Doncic question, which I'm sure we'll go into later, but, you know, what's more valuable, uh, another playmaker who, you know, just has amazing ball-handling ability and, and a way to, to be a third facilitator or a second facilitator on a good team or a big man who, you know, would be great maybe five, ten years ago, and now he brings a jump shot, but is that going out of style in this modern NBA? So all of that to say that I think <laughs> – a team could win um, with a team's best player. I just think that 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 player has to be just almost complete in in respects of offensively and defensively. That there's not one weakness that they could just take him out the game. You can't take him out the foul line, you know, by hacker whoever DeAndre Jordan style. Um, you can't just take them on um, a pick and roll on a switch and just expose them defensively. And you also want to make sure that they can get the ball. Inside, you know, inside 10 feet and do damage there, outside of 25 feet and do damage there. So I think it's the right type of player. And I do think that player exists. We just have to find them.
0: Yeah. Um, okay, so I just read, and it's funny that we're talking about this now because Kevin Pelton um, had an article basically talking about this exact question on ESPN. I think it came out like Thursday or maybe even uh, on Friday. And I just pulled a couple of, uh, of uh, statistics and facts from the article. First one, he said that Pelton pointed out that in this year's conference finals and both of those series went seven games, the four teams got a combined three minutes by players listed as seven foot or taller. Now, oh my that now it, technically we got to talk about Clint Capella, who's listed as six ten. obviously he played a lot, um, but traditional seven footers did not play in those, in those conference finals. And then he said, oh, Pelton also pointed out that over the past three years, seven footers, again we have to point out that there are a bunch of centers that are listed as you know 610 or or whatever um but 7 footers have played um a dramatically lower share of minutes in the playoffs than they do in the regular season because as we have you know come to see Small ball just is getting more and more popular. Obviously the Warriors made a huge deal with their death lineup, Draymond Green. The Rockets again used it this year with, with PJ Tucker to counter and that, you know, played a lot of minutes in that conference finals to match up with the Warriors. It's just the new trend. Um, obviously you have to have the right pieces to do it, but um, and then the other thing that Pelton pointed out in his article, which I thought was really interesting, is that, you know, he basically was talking about, you know, how with the increased Spacing and shooting you can find value at the center position a little bit easier now Um, In terms of you know finding someone who can you know competently defend the rim you know potentially catch a a lob and an an alley-oop And you know set decent screens, you know have decent hands to be able to catch the ball in the pick and roll You know you can sign you can find that value a little bit easier than in years past. You don't really need that back down center that has all the post moves anymore. Um, and in the article itself, he kind of analyzed, you know, how much value was created by centers that signed for the minimum uh, minimum contracts compared to other positions. A little bit detailed. I don't want to, you know, dive into right now. But definitely check out the article from Kevin Pelton. It basically answers this question in more in depth and a more statistical way. Um, all that's to say that. I think your I think a center can be the best player on your team, but he, as you said, he has to be that center that can stay on the floor for you know thirty plus minutes in the playoffs specifically, and he has to have the right team around him. He has to have good defenders around him that can switch. He has to be able to competently switch, and you know I know that not all the all the NBA teams switch as their defensive scheme, but out of the out of the conference finals, and you know I think pretty much all those teams... I mean, obviously, the Rockets and Warriors and the Cavs did it a lot. Celtics did it too. All of those teams are switching. Uh, and Rockets basically switch everything, which is very extreme. Um, but switching is becoming that scheme that a lot of teams, I think, are going to start using more and more as they continue to get... They're going to try and find players that can implement that scheme. And they're going to start switching more and more, which means the center that's going to be the best player on your team, hypothetically, has to be able to switch competently and have good defenders around him for to make up for you know his slips here and there. Um, but also... You know he doesn't have to be that guy who can you know dominate in the post. Obviously Joel Embiid can, but Joel Embiid can kind of stretch out to the three point line a little bit. Uh, Nikola Jokic, you know he's you know not. I don't think the Nuggets can win a championship with him as their best player because of just the defensive limitations. So you, obviously you have to be good on defense and offense. Um, but I, I just think that there has to be the right team around the center. The center has to be able to switch. The center has to be able to defend the rim um he just has he has to set good screens like Capella is probably the idea is the person we're talking about here in terms of he'll never be the best player on the team but if you get a better version of Capella, maybe more polished post game maybe more physical a little bit bigger um but in terms of will we will that player does that player exist is the first question does is that player in this draft i'm not sure um And then can you win if that player is better than Clint Capella? Because then again, you know, if Clint Capella was better, he would maybe not fit his role as well with the Rockets. So there's just so many aspects about this. Um, But I I think that ultimately, I don't think that the teams are going to draft based on this thinking. Like I know that all the front offices probably are realizing this, that, they're in the draft. They're in their war room saying, you know what? Look at this. The NBA, small ball is bigger. Can we really draft DeAndre in number one when we got a guy like Luka Doncic who is better for small ball, obviously, but playmaker, um, can create shots for himself and his teammates, can attack the basket, et cetera. Probably a better p- player to draft if you're looking for small ball lineups. But I don't think they're going to draft based on this thinking because I think that if they were, we'd see so many less bigs in the top ten. Um, you know, right now I think there's probably like five or six projected to go in the top 10 and we'll talk about this later with Alex, um, but we'd obviously see more of an emphasis on wings and playmakers than we are still, than we're seeing right now. And obviously there is a big emphasis on the elite ones, but even the, you know, solid ones that are going to probably be projected to go like 15th through 20th in the draft in the first round, we'd see those guys be thrown into the top 10 if if teams are actually drafting based on this line of thinking, which I don't think they are, um, but ultimately, I do agree with you that I think the center can be the best player. I think it's going to be extremely rare. I, I think we won't see it for a while. I think it'll have to wait, you know, past this Warriors dynasty to, to kind of die off. But that center again has to be able to play 30 plus minutes in the playoffs. That means, you know, capable switching, defending the rim, setting good screens, good pick and roll play, both offensively and defensively, um, and not being, you know, too skilled in the post to demand all the post shots because you can defend the post a lot easier today than you could have 15, 20 years ago.
1: Sure. That is definitely true. I, on the one hand, i just—it it seems like in the modern NBA, it's kind of taken it away, I guess, where you get that big low post center with the treasure trove of moves, and I—that's the part of the old-fashioned NBA fan me that just loves to see that. But you're right; it's so easy to spend help, um, double, you know, sneak from the post. It—it it is hard, but they basically have to be a, a multi-faceted player and really hide their weaknesses pretty darn well. So I'm totally with you on that one. Um. So, I see Julius Randle as a Lakers fan. My eyes right light up. So, you want me to ask the next one
0: here? <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it.
1: <laughs> All right. So, this is from our man Justin Carter. Shout out to you, man. The question is, what are your thoughts on Julius Randle's free agency? So, I'm, I'm going to jump on this real quick just because I want to gush a little bit on Julius Randle. I'm going <laughs> to give it to you, Eric. um, So, this past season, I, I, I think Randle should be a hot commodity based off the way he played he averaged 16 points eight rebounds and about three assists per game on 55.8 shooting and if we would take those numbers and just stream them down to when he was a starter and that he started he started in the opening lineup on december 29th so that gives about 49 games to work with then his numbers become even more crazy which is 18.6 points a game nine rebounds and three assists i really hate these arbitrary stats but i did look this up and i mean Is going to work with the context given, so I'm going to say it. There were only four players this season that put up at least 19 points, nine rebounds, and three assists this season. That was Giannis Titicumpo, Russell Westbrook, Joel Embiid, and DeMarcus Cousins. So, you know, just saying it's semi-elite company, you know, if you take all that into consideration. He's only 23. He has plenty of upside. Ideally, I would like him to stay with the Lakers. I think, you know, we drafted him seventh overall 2014. He's kind of been with us through the ups and downs so far, and we seem to be not we, the Lakers seem to be coming back. And I think that building and giving some confidence to the player that you drafted and not letting him go for the first free agent fish, which, you know, the Lakers have done in years past and failed um, miserably. I think is important um, just for his confidence. And also for you as a franchise to say, okay, you know what? We're behind you. And he, he's been playing really well. So that would be my, my ideal choice. If that doesn't work and the Lakers, you know, choose to go for Paul George and LeBron James, um, first and just let Randall kind of wither out there then I think the Mavericks would be a pretty good spot for him I really really am a fan of Rick Carlisle I think he would get the most out of Julius just in general here he has playmaking ability that we could see he can already bring the ball end to end distribute he can score I think his shooting obviously is something that would need to work on his three-point shooting actually regressed this season but I think that they would fit well. I think Dallas would want him. He killed Dallas this year. In four games, he put up 21 points a game, 11 rebounds, and five assists, almost six. It was 5.6 assists per game on 66% shooting. So if you take him and put him next to a, a point guard that they already have that could be a franchise cornerstone in Dennis Smith and playing for one of the elite coaches, I think it would work. And it wouldn't hurt that you know he's 6'9". It would be his first big payday. And That would be something for Dallas to say, okay, you know what? We went for someone in free agency that we wanted and we actually got him because they also have been pretty bad in the free agent front lately. And it would be good for Julius Randle to kind of be on a team that wanted him and that can work with him. And there's opportunity there. You know, you still have Dirk another year, so he would learn with that veteran leadership and then, you know, stay over there and carry on that mantle. You have Dennis Smith, as we already mentioned. Um, I, I think it would be pretty good. Another one, and this is one more I had that I actually would like, would be Indiana. Um, I think he would play a, a nice, interesting, versatile front court alongside Miles Turner. Um, Miles Turner hit about 36% from three this season, so I think that inside-outside game would be pretty good. And he's playing alongside, you know, a star in, in Victor Oladipo, who just came out of nowhere this season and is not only signed through a good deal, but will only be 27 when the deal runs out. So if you have a core of Miles Turner, Victor Oladipo, and Julius Randle in the East, and let's say LeBron does leave. I think that's right up there with the Celtics, with the 76ers, you know, with the upper team, upper echelon in the Eastern Conference. And that would be another interesting one. And, you know, if Thaddeus Young is there, then, hey, he can play alongside him, learn from him a little bit as a vet, and grow in that front. And if not, he could take up that spot. So uh, those are the two teams I'm mostly looking forward to. But if L.A., please, L.A., you know, if L.A. is listening, someone there, sign the man, go go with LeBron everyone, but you have your power forward. He's 23. He's played great the past two seasons. Lock him up.
0: Yeah, so my so I, as anyone who's listened to the show knows, we are both on Randall Island. Oh uh, yeah, we have been for a while. Despite oh. that, I still think I'd have concerns, slight concerns about giving him twenty plus million a year, which is you know what he's looking for, what the rumors are, everything like that. I think with Randall's in a, is an interesting player in an interesting time for the NBA. I think that he can excel in the right defensive system with the right coach, like you said, maybe like a Carlisle, someone who will really get consistent energy out of him. And I think the key thing is that he either has to be at center. He either has to play center full time or he has to play as a power forward alongside a center who can shoot to sprace the floor. And and this is only talking about the offensive side. If you played Randall against a traditional with a traditional center, like if you put Randall next to like DeAndre Jordan Oof. It'd be ugly if you put Randall <laughs> next to Nowitzki, who's obviously way past his prime, but someone who can shoot threes. If you put like, and there's not many, you know, centers that are not small centers that are, are shooting threes. That's 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 where the tricky thing comes because you have, if you're signing Randall for that kind of money, you kind of have to plan either to play him at center to make the offensive side work, but then on the other side, he doesn't defend the rim. He's just too small, and his defensive energy is kind of inconsistent. So. You know, if you play him at center full time, sure his offensive, his spacing won't kill the offense, and he can he can play make as a center as you said, which is nice for for most offenses. Um, provides another playmaker. You know, when guards aren't you know getting things going, um, on the defensive side. And When we were talking about switching and switching everything, how that's the new trend, that's where Randall comes in at the center position. He can switch. He can be pretty good at switching. We've seen him when he's locked in, he can really hang with guards on the perimeter. Um, And that scheme is something that more and more teams are using. So it's, it's such an interesting player for me because... You want to play him at center on the offensive side, but on the defensive side, you have concerns about hit playing him at center for the rebounding and the rim protection. But then on the right. other hand, him playing center would be good in a switching scheme, but not all teams do that. And, you know, if you sign up to $20-plus plus million a year and you don't put him in the right role, that that's that's how you doom someone to... That's how you, it, that's how you get a player destined for failure. If you, if you put them in the wrong role to begin with and they don't live up... And, you know, fans will go crazy. Oh, he's not doing well. Well, he's in the wrong role. He signed for 20 plus million. I know he's young, but, you know... Especially for a team like the Mavericks who have Harrison Barnes signed for that contract and he's basically doing nothing um, <laughs> but putting up you know, right. 19 empty points per game. Um, my thing with – it's just like and, – and here's what the, the – I agree with you on the Mavericks. I also agree with you on the Pacers. That could be pretty interesting. The Mavericks – and the Mavericks were the team that were rumored to look at him like throughout the season. They were always like, oh, the Mavericks are going to offer him that you know, $23 million a year contract. But what happens if the Mavericks draft a big like Mo Bamba? Uh, they, that's that's the pick that a lot of people are rumored to for the mavericks to make is, is drafting a big whether whoever's available okay. bomba eight will be gone jaron jackson jr will probably be gone so it'll probably be bomba um what happens if they draft bomba i mean would you go out and give 20 plus million dollars a year to randall and what are you gonna do with him are you gonna start him at center and, and wait for bomba to be ready or are you gonna put him at a power forward next to bomba you going to bring Dirk off the bench? Are you going to bring Randall off the bench for $20-plus plus million a year? Ooh, I, mean, I know the Rockets yeah. are doing that with Ryan Anderson, but that's because they basically have to. Um, so <laughs> there, there are so many concerns that I would have. If I, and, and this is a, another thing about Randall that's interesting. I know I've been rambling for a while. But not only is he an interesting player at an interesting time for the NBA, he's also entering at an interesting free agency where not a lot of teams have money. And the teams that have money to throw at him, you know, the Hawks will have money. The Mavericks will have money. What the Hawks are rumored, you know, could be definitely be drafting Jar- Jaron Jackson Jr. That's the center right there, a center that can actually shoot a little bit better than uh, Julius Randall, and can you know I, I'm really high on Jaron Jackson. Um, but and the Mavericks could draft Bomba. That's that's two teams that could have offered Randall this contract that are potentially slash very likely going to be drafting bigs of their future. And why would they sign Randle if they draft their you know center of the future to play him a power forward? Hawks have John Collins. The Mavericks, do they really want to put Randall next to Barnes, next to Bombo? That's just not enough shooting for me, in, in my opinion. Um, yeah. I, I would I would try and sign Randall. I'd try and get him lower than $20 million a year, and I'd, I'd try and sign him only if I knew that I, I would play him the majority of his minutes, like 80-plus percent of his minutes at center in a switching scheme. That's what I'd be looking to do with Julius Randall. Um, but I, I don't I don't think there's a team out there that has that situation ready for him or the money ready for him. Or the teams that have the money will be drafting a big, and that kind of get, takes away the point of, of signing Randall. That those are my, that's just my thoughts on Julius Randall's free agency. I was rambling for a while there. I love Randall. I love him as a player. I just think he's in a very unique situation right now, both as a player and for his free agency situation that he's going to be entering in July.
1: Okay, you got me there. And you, you I forgot about the whole fit on the other end because I was so excited by all the points and rim running that he'd been doing. And maybe I looked at a few too many YouTube highlight, you know, films of <laughs> Randall. So. Thank you for bringing me back to reality and grind, grounding me there a little bit.
0: <laughs> yeah, listen, all it right? has to happen. That, that's what happens with free agency. Everyone gets so – everyone's so glossy about all the new signings. Oh, my team just signed this guy. Let's look at his YouTube highlights. But let's let's forget that he <laughs> you know, was one of the worst defenders in the league last season or something like that. But I love Randy. Oh, yes. But there are certain situations about him as a player and the situation he's going to be entering in that, that give me pause about – Getting excited for agency, I think that yeah, you know, going back to Lakers, if they swing out on people, would actually be probably best for him in terms of situation. Um, especially Brook Lopez is gone, they could honestly. I mean, I wouldn't be scared to start him at center. I know it's small, really small ball lineup, but it's fun. You got to get weird in, t- in today's NBA. That's the whole thing with <laughs> the league. Um, That's the motto Exactly <laughs> It's fantastic <Let's>... <laughs> <laughs> The new slogan should be NBA Let's get weird uh, <laughs> You know Not where amazing happens Obviously amazing happens But amazing happens In every sports Professional sports league Let, Let's get weird Is the new NBA slogan um, I like Alright yeah Speaking of weird there's It's gonna be weird Seeing uh, a bunch of these New coaches In the NBA this season Um so this is a question that I posed to us by myself, which is maybe lame, I guess, but you know what? We're doing it anyways. Um, so my question really is to you and also to myself, because I, I haven't really had time to sit down and think about the coaching hires. Which coaching hires do you like and which do you not like? Um, and I'll get started with a couple you know, that I like and don't like, and I'll throw it back to you. First one that I like is Mike Budenholzer in Milwaukee. And this is mainly because the Bucks just have not had a good coach for a while. Um, Jason Kidd, obviously, he had his fair share of uh, turmoil in Milwaukee. Let's just put it at that. Um, by the way, if you haven't seen the Game of Zones episode about Jason Kidd in Milwaukee, it's one of the funniest <laughs> things available on the internet. Go check it out right now. Um, but really, with Budenholzer, he's going to provide stability, and he's going to provide an actual system for the Bucks and specifically for Giannis. Um, you know, perhaps he'll get a little bit more creative than previous coaches in Milwaukee have done. Perhaps he won't screw up with weird end-of-game fouling situations like previous ga- coaches in Milwaukee have done. Perhaps he won't ask players to knock drinks into him to get a timeout like previous coaches have done in Milwaukee. He actually did it in Brooklyn, but still he did it as a coach, uh, and he went to the Milwaukee afterwards. So um, anyways, Budenholzer in Milwaukee I like. I just think the stability aspect, and I know that there have been rumors about him clashing with players and clashing with management. You know, I think maybe he'll learn his lesson after leaving Atlanta. Um, I just think that the stability and the kind of more creativity that we should hopefully see from him in Milwaukee would be so great for Giannis. And just a stable presence that is a respected coach and a a successful coach. Obviously, he's had success in the past. Finally can try and get Milwaukee out of that first round is a coaching hire that I like. I'll counter that with one that I don't like, and then I'm going to throw it to you. Dwayne Casey in Detroit. And, oh, wow. I, I, I don't like it for... Like, I don't like it because of the situation. I I like Dwayne Casey as a coach. I think he's a good coach. And I think that the move to get rid of Stan Van Gundy was good because, you know, definitely get rid of him as as GM or, you know, president of basketball operations. He just didn't do a good job there. Um, But as coach, I think it was a little bit of a still voice in the locker room. I get the idea, and I like the idea of getting rid of Stan Van Gundy. But Casey, I don't think, is the right coach for the Pistons. He's a good coach that's had a, a good amount of success. But my question is, is he creative enough with the playbook? to make this weird, weirdly fit Detroit Pistons team work, Griffin and Drummond specifically. Is Casey really gonna be good enough and creative enough with the offensive playbook to make the Griffin Drummond pairing work? And, you know, the other thing is that, you know, the Pistons were so desperate for him that they gave him a long contract and a lot of money. I think it was was it five years, thirty five million dollars. Yeah. Um, but my thing is and and for Casey, he's a good coach, but for the Pistons, I don't like the Pistons for Dwayne Casey. Is what I'm saying, really? Because this team's salary situation, I think, puts them to be at best a six c in the East. I just don't think they can't really add anything. And if one of those guys goes down, especially Reggie Jackson, if he gets injured again, they're basically where they were last year. Can the Griffin and Drummond pairing work? You know, the spacing wise, and I don't think we have. I don't think we've ever seen Dwayne Casey be creative enough with the playbook himself. To, to make this weird pairing of bigs work because in, in past coaching stints, especially with Toronto, he didn't work with the two dynamic bigs. He worked with, you know, dynamic backcourts. And then also the rumors that Nick Nurse was basically the guy behind their offensive system in, in Toronto is also kind of concerning for me. But we'll get to Nick Nurse later. But I don't like, I like Dwayne Casey in a as a coach in a vacuum. I just don't like him joining the Pistons team, especially this Pistons team with this salary situation. So Dwayne Casey in Detroit, I don't like Budenholzer in Milwaukee. I do like... And now I'll throw it over to you because I've been rambling for quite a long time.
1: Oh, nah, nah. All right, so I'm actually – I was shocked only because I was going to say one coach that I do like is Dwayne Casey in Detroit. But <laughs> hear me out just for a moment here. I, first, I think on, on, a, on a team with, like Detroit, you already have Andre Drummond and Blake Griffin moving forward. And not that Stan Van Cundy was not experienced or, or anything of that sort, but I think a fresh face that has or has earned respect – on a team that's I don't want to say is in transition but just a team with a lot of let's say interesting players I think you have someone who in doing case, has either been an assistant coach or a head coach since the 94-95 season that's 22 years that's like longer than me you know I, not that that means much but you know that's, that's a long time over two decades and I think having that experience and during the playoffs earning some praise from LeBron for you know um, his game plan defensively with the Mavericks in that 2011 finals I mean not only is that high praise from arguably the greatest of all time and not even really applicable to my case here, but it, his emphasis on defense was was shown during his tenure in Toronto. Um, they were ranked 25th overall in the 2014-2015 season defensively, and they jumped from that all the way up to 5th in the 2017-2018 season. That's just marked improvement, and that actually goes along with what I was going to say from my next point, which is player development. Um, I agree with you, Eric. <laughs> the, the The playbook isn't Um, Casey's strongest suit, especially adjusting in game, in series, just adjusting period. But player development, I think, is something that he hasn't gotten enough credit for. Um, When he first arrived in Toronto, I think it was 2010, 2011, it was 2011. But people forget, DeMar DeRozan went and shot 31% from three. And that's not, that's below league average. I mean, we were all surprised that he went through a couple of runs where he was making threes, you know, in a series of games a la um, Dwayne Wade. But Get this, when he's shooting 31% now, when Dwayne Casey first arrived in Toronto, the shooting guard, the dude DeMar DeRozan was shooting 10% from the three-point line. Like, that wasn't even, it wasn't even a threat for a shot. Like, he knew it, defense knew it in general. And yes, there's been about seven seasons from then, but there has been some improvement there. Same with Kyle Lowry, who's been a, mar- a marksman the past couple of years. But people forget, um, prior to going to the Raptors in 2012, his career three-point percent was 33%. Um, he wasn't really lighting the world on fire in Houston or in Memphis, as far as that was concerned. And now he got all the way from almost automatic, 38% in his six seasons with Toronto. And lastly, and this is one I didn't even know, Jonas Valanciunas in his first five seasons of the NBA only took four three-point attempts total. And, I mean, you look at him and you think, okay, he's kind of a, a back-to-the-basket kind of dude, limited attempts, he's really there for the rebounding. You know, okay, it makes sense. Um, he was one of four in his first five seasons. This past season, he made 30 out of a career-high 74 attempts. And that was good enough for 40% on the year. And obviously that's the players, you know, putting some development in, working on their craft, making that happen. But I do want to give credit to Casey for saying, you know, at least the coach, working on, on developing these players and, and making them come out and, and and play in ways that, you know, their ceiling wasn't there. They've raised their ceiling in that way. Um, and the last thing, I just think he, he's respected, you know. Um I don't like the whole situation and how it went down with Toronto. Maybe, you know, was it the player's fault? Was it the coach's fault that they couldn't get past LeBron? But Dwayne Casey's been nothing but class. Um, he's been doing this for a long time. Steady. I think he'll come in and, and not that the Detroit wasn't or Van Gundy wasn't, but we all know Van Gundy can be a little bit volatile. He can kind of let his emotions get ahead of him. I don't think that'll be an issue with Dwayne Casey. And I think that that's why he's the right man right now for Detroit. But um, that was interesting. I, I get what you're saying as far as you know, the situation in respect and also the fact that, hey, this Detroit team doesn't seem to max out to be anything more than, you know, fifth or sixth at best in this Eastern Conference, which is saying something, you know, depending on where LeBron goes or how future moves are made. But I do think, you know, you give Dwayne Casey, yeah, he's 61, give him a five-year deal, if nothing else, I think that he can take the players that you currently have and develop them a little bit more. The Reggie Bullocks, you know, the the Stanley Johnsons, I think those players – you'll see over time we will develop in in little things and get better as players concerned.
0: Well, the Pistons better hope they do because they're going to not be able to add anyone (laughs) off in terms of salary cap situation. Um, but, uh, so since we're going to try and get Alex on somewhat soon, I'll run through a little bit, a little bit quicker of other coaches, coaching hires I like and don't like. Um, in a vacuum, I do like David Fisdell with the Knicks. I think that he'll be able to add some stability and creativity, kind of like Budenholzer, maybe play Porzingis more at center. Um, he's known for being a strong players coach, despite whatever the situation with Marcus Gasol was. Um, right. But Fisdell, again, another guy who's respected a lot by the players and also around the league. Uh, I just think that's stability for the Knicks. And maybe there'll never be stability with James Dolan owning the team. Uh, but this this feels like something that could be a little bit more stable and a little bit more creative in terms of offensively um, for the Knicks. Um, Igor Kokoskov with the Suns, I think um he has a strong reputation. He's had a lot of success overseas. I, I even though I think that the Suns are basically locked in to draft DeAndre Ayton, he did have a, he did and does have a good connection with Luka Doncic, even though that probably won't play into the, the Suns team anyways. Um but again, something that, that'll be a trend in when I get to the other coaches that I don't like, uh or coaching hires I don't like for that matter, because I, I like some of the coaches. Um I think that for teams in situations like the Suns, it makes more sense to me to try out on a try out the assistant coaches or the overseas coaches or whatever that are more unproven in the NBA. I think when you hire these veterans, the veteran coaches that are you know in their late fifties, early sixties, late sixties, whatever, who've been around for twenty years, I, I'm not sure that's the greatest thing for teams that are completely rebuilding teams where their core players are like twenty two years old or twenty three or you know no no, no older than twenty four, twenty five. If you're a team that like the Rockets were when they fired uh, Kevin McHale and JB Bickerstaff was the interim, and they were looking for a new coach. You know, they were basically. It came down to two people really. It was Steven Silas, the assistant coach then uh, of the Hornets, and D'Antoni. And people were wondering what, should the Rockets go for the unproven guy and see what they can do. And when they hired D'Antoni, Daryl Morey' logic was: Listen, all of our guys are in their prime, if not past their prime. You know, trying out a young assistant doesn't make sense for us. But for these teams, for the Suns, who are completely rebuilding, right, they're not going to make the playoffs, at least for the next two years, probably. Their best players are 22 and younger. Um, I'm not sure it makes sense for them to hire an older guy. So hiring a little bit more unproven guy, a little bit less experience in the NBA as a head coach, give him this time to, to grow as a coach with this team as he grows with the players. That's what I like to see from these rebuilding teams. So that's why I like Koskov with the Suns. And that's what, other reasons why I don't like Steve Clifford in Orlando. And... Um, And I'll get to the other two right now. But Steve Clifford and Orlando to me, I like Clifford. I actually think he's a good coach. Um, He's had some success, obviously. Some recently he hasn't had that much success. But, again, I was hoping the Magic just took a a swing on a younger, more unproven coach, a guy like Jerry Stackhouse who's been a a hot coaching commodity or a hot name, you know, thrown out there. And and the thing with the Magic is like – does anyone really expect anything but you know anywhere from like twenty nine to thirty three wins for the next couple of years? I mean, what's the difference between hiring Clifford and hiring an unproven assistant that can grow as a coach as the team grows and as the the young players of the Magic grow together? I think that you know hiring those younger unproven assistants for rebuilding teams is is what I would do. Um, and you know, speaking of that, I guess the Grizzlies stuck with J.B. Bickerstaff, and number one, I I think we've seen. I think B- Bickerstaff has basically had two full years as a coach uh, because he basically entered as an interim coach. You know, within the first fifteen or twenty games, both both with the Rockets and the Grizzlies, and he's shown little to nothing of to give you inspiration of if he'd be an actually good you know head coach in the future. And the thing with the Grizzlies hiring is that I'm pretty sure, and this happened you know a, I think a month or two ago, so it's kind of a little bit rough in my mind, but I'm pretty sure they basically gave him a three-year deal without interviewing anybody else i'm pretty sure that's what happened um and in what world does it make sense to not even interview anyone else when this guy has shown basically nothing to give you confidence in him being the head coach to turn things around especially when it was like i think it was this week where the grizzlies owner basically came out and said that he expects the team to return to you know contention 50 plus wins as soon as next year what happens if the Grizzlies struggle again? They gave Bickerstaff this three-year deal. Are they gonna fire him right away? I mean, I, I'm not sure he's the coach for a situation like this, where the best players are in their prime or past their prime, like Marcus and, and Mike Conley. Bickerstaff is a guy who would fit better in a guy in somewhere in like Orlando um, or Atlanta, um, where they're really young, the players are young, and the team's rebuilding. Um, and finally, last ramble, Nick Nurse for Toronto. I don't like the situ- I, I don't like the situation because they fired Casey. Who then got hired before Toronto decides on Nick Nurse? Then they stay in house and they got a pretty cheap deal with Nurse because he's not really proven, not not no name recognition or whatever. If you really wanted to shake things up, is promoting an assistant from Casey's staff really the way to go? That's my question. Um, I get I get that he's not doing Casey; he's his own man, own playbook, own way of you know leading, own way of motivating players, you know, own way of giving speeches in the locker room, whatever. But I, I think that staying in, in staff or staying in-house was not the best decision for a team that wanted to make a shakeup by, by blaming the coach pretty much and then you keep a guy from that coaching staff there. I don't know. The rumors, though, of Nick Nurse being an offensive – you know genius pretty much being responsible for that offensive system i am excited for a nurse's offensive creativity to be more unlocked as the head coach you have more reign as the head coach obviously than you do as an assistant so i'm excited for that but i just don't like staying in house for the raptors so that's my ramble those are the coaching hires i like and some of them that i don't like
1: hey that was a pretty solid run through and i agree with you on nurse i thought that was just it just wasn't the best in judgment to me it just kind of seemed weird you know what i mean so i'm right there with you but wow that was very efficient eric look at you (laughs)
0: <laughs> and listen, you haven't lost your touch <laughs> sometimes yeah, so i might be a little bit rusty but sometimes you just gotta you just gotta be efficient sometimes um and also just to mention the jury i think both for me and for everyone else the jury's still out on uh, lloyd pierce being hired by the hawks he's been respected by some of the players and and james brejo um being hired by the hornets he comes from the spurs um he had a brief stint as the magic interim coach didn't do well but no one does well in orlando so we're not going to blame him there um <laughs> Uh, he comes and then he went to the Spurs for a while as an assistant and, you know, Spurs assistants have done really well in recent years. So there could be some, uh, high potential there. Um, but let's quickly get to our final mailbag question before we get Alex on to talk about the draft. Um, so the question, actually you got this question, so I'll let you throw it out and you can start answering it yourself.
1: All right. Yeah. This is my kind of version of a lame question. Me and my friend Joe were talking his up. Shout out Joe. Um, where would you like to see? And it's really just you know one of the basic, most vanilla ice cream questions, but I feel is worthy for an off-season you know preview pod type mailbag. Where would you like to see LeBron James? Where you like to see Paul George? Demarcus Cousins? Even Kawhi? Dun dun dun. Yep, I know. But um, I'm pretty basic in, in status quo in all of my answers. I would just. Like, to see LeBron go back to Cleveland. I feel that he, he's reached 33, kind of reached that latter stage in his career. None of the other um, none of the other options really pop out to me. Houston would be great as far as competing not only directly with Golden State, but just on, on a team with a player they once played with in Chris Paul and just an offensive genius in, in James Harden. But to get him, you know, everywhere that I've seen is either, you know, you play a, the great Ryan Anderson and have no depth, or, you know, you just try, and, and you're probably a lot more familiar with this, Eric, but try to find a way that some team, any team, will take Ryan Anderson off of their hands, which seems to be a challenge, um, just from my own elementary understanding of that situation. So, you know, if, if not Houston, if they find a way to do that, where he goes to Houston and has, you know, a semi-competent team with no depth and obviously a you know injury-prone Chris Paul, I mean, yeah, then I would rather have him in Cleveland um, and just stick it out the rest of the way. Paul George... I, I'm torn because I'm a Laker fan, but I also have a soft spot for Russell Westbrook. And I just, as much as I want Paul George to go to L.A., I also don't think that he's an alpha dog type player. And so I think he would help, L, you know, he'd help the Lakers involved in front of the level, but he wouldn't be the player to take them over the top, which is who I'd like as you know, as a free agent fish, especially one of Paul George's caliber. And if you take him and LeBron James, then you're basically saying, you know, goodbye to some of your um your young your young core, if if not most of them. So that's that's my question. I actually believe in them. So that's where I'm a little torn. On the other hand, um I, I want him to stay in O K C because I'd rather have Russell Westbrook with Paul George and maybe let Carmelo go and kinda of rebuild with some athletic younger players and some shooters and kinda of give that a shot where you have Russ as your you know he's he's not the best batman i actually wouldn't even put him as a batman but in this team he is the batman and that paul george the robin and you have a bunch of the players who do their role jeremy grant alex sabrinas patrick patterson kind of filling from there and i think you have a decent western conference team probably a five six seed type deal but a uh, definitely competitive team whereas if paul george leaves okc which i would totally get then you right now at least you're looking at russell westbrook and Like a worse version of the 2017 Thunder team. I really don't want to see that. Just as a Rustbrook fan, and also, you know, it would make the Warrior Thunder games a heck of a lot less interesting. Um, So that's a toss up to me. I'd say OKC because it's easier, and I think Sam Presti could work his magic with Melo to make him decline that offer, even though that option, even though it's a lot of money, and kind of retool through there. Demarcus Cousins, um, real quick, New Orleans. I think you find a match for him where you give him the max over two or three years, maybe a two-year um, or a three-year player option, team option after the second year or, or team option after the third, just where it's a mix between a little bit of security for Cousins. I'm not just going to disrespect him and throw him a one-year deal like a make good when he was playing just at a tremendous level and had the Pelicans on the rise before he went down. At the same time, you do have to cover yourself as a team and not give him a max deal, you know, the whole five-year, all the goods, all the fixings when he is come back from ACL tear and big man. Players historically come back changed. Um, I personally don't think that Cousins' game will be affected as much because he's not really relying on athleticism as is, but it is ACL tear and something to take consideration. Lastly, Kawhi. I think um, me and you'll probably talk about that in a minute, so I'm gonna let you get the first three players there, Eric.
0: Yeah. So I'll keep mine short. I completely agree with you, Demarcus Cousins, because I'm intrigued to see how. Uh, how the Pelicans can do with Cousins now because we saw Drew Holiday was an absolute monster in the playoffs. Can he continue playing like that? That adds a, you know, a third star right there pretty much. Um, And then with Miritich in the fold, you can get kind of interesting with, you know, staggering Miritich with Anthony Davis and Cousins. And then, you know, Drew Holiday's there. They got some shooting, Etuan Moore, maybe Solomon Hill can play decent, give him a couple decent minutes there. Um, that team, that team, if it works and it fits well and everyone's engaged and everyone buys into their roles and Drew Holiday keeps playing the way he did and Cousins comes back to like n- even 90% of what he was last season, that team could be really good and really sneaky, uh, sneaky like top five, top four seed in the West. So that's interesting. I want to see him go back there. And really there's no other team that would be competitive with him. Like I wouldn't want to see Cousins signed by the Mavericks to do nothing there for a 35-win team. Like, <laughs> that, that just wouldn't be that fun because we saw that in Sacramento for like nine years. Um I would, I think, you know, obviously being a little bit biased, I would want to see one of LeBron or Paul George on the Rockets because I think that, you know, that would make – it would just give us two super teams in the West, um, and, and the battle of those two super teams would be must-see TV, both when they ever, whenever they play in the regular season, like three or four times in the regular season, and then if they would play again in the playoffs, you know, everyone would watch these two super teams, <clears throat> one led by LeBron James, one led by, you know, Steph Curry or Kevin Durant, however you see it. Uh, as their number one. I think that'd be incredible. Um, but then again, you know, tying into Paul George and LeBron, you know, seeing Kawhi Leonard, you know, join one or both of them in LA. I think, you know, I'm, I just want to think because number one, it create another super team and whether or not you consider the Rockets a super team, I don't really think they are. They only have two stars and I think the, the, the quote unquote qualifications that I guess we have on NBA Twitter is that you have to have three <laughs> stars or something to be a super team. Um, but then, you know, the Lakers, And the Warriors, those battles would be incredibly interesting. Um, Lakers-Rockets' battles would be incredibly interesting. I think that'd be – I'm all for super teams – in terms of trying to take down the Warriors. And then also a side plot of that is that if that did if that super team did form and you had the Rockets, who won 65 games last year and basically were one Chris Paul hamstring injury away from the finals, you have the Warriors, obviously a dominant dynasty, and you had this super team in LA, I think it put pressure on the owners to create the one through sixteen playoff seating. Um, which I could probably spend a whole hour talking about on a podcast because I think it'd be fascinating. Um, I'm all for that one through sixteen playoff seating. I think that would only happen if we saw three super teams or two and a half super teams in one conference that put pressure to create that new playoff seating, which I think would be so interesting for the league. Um, but then some side, some side ones, some just fun ideas I've had. Some, uh, you know, potentially some two K my leagues that I've started. LeBron, <laughs> LeBron and Denver would be. I wouldn't say that I'd buy season tickets just when he signed. I, I wouldn't be that. I wouldn't be able to do that. But I think I'd consider it because LeBron and Denver would be so. So fun. I mean, imagine him. Now, probably all these pieces wouldn't be around if he decided to go to Denver and, you know, whether that would be like a a trade where he had to opt into a player option. But just imagine him next to a playmaking center, Nikola Jokic. uh, An all-around stud on both ends of the floor and Paul Millsap. Shooters and capable ball handlers that are still 23 and younger and Jamal Murray and Gary Harris. Um, I just think it would be such a fun team to watch. A team that wouldn't probably... You know, come close to beating the Warriors because the guys are too young and they just don't have enough. Um, but they'd be, you know, really good. Top three seed in the East probably. And they'd just be so fun to watch on a basis. basis. Um, and then I think Paul George on the Sixers would also be very interesting. I think he'd fit right in. I think he'd make that Sixers-Celtics rivalry that's going to start happening, especially if LeBron leaves the Cavs. And those are the two main teams in the East. Um, adding Paul George to Simmons and Bede. Fultz, if he can come back. You know, Darius Saric. You know, maybe Reddick comes back for a cheaper deal. That team would be really good to ma- match up with the Celtics team that's going to get Gordon Hayward back, get Kyrie Irving back, and their young players will take another step up. So those are just some possible destinations that I'd like to see some of those players with.
1: I like that one. And you sold me on Denver. Jeez, that's that's actually stinky good right there.
0: I mean, it's just so fun. And I have a limited experience playing with this situation in 2K, and it's a whole lot of fun. I highly recommend it. Um And LeBron, if you're listening, obviously he's not. (laughs) Uh, LeBron, if you're listening, um, I tried it on 2K and the team did pretty well and it was really fun, so I think you should try it out too. uh, Hashtag LeBron to Denver. Um, But (laughs) with that, we're going to end the Millbag segment um, and we're going to be right back um, with Alex West from Ninety Four Feet Report. We're going to talk all things draft. We're going to pick his mind. He's been leading our draft coverage on Ninety Four Feet Report, the draft guide, the articles, and certain player profiles. The Men Show on YouTube as well. Um, we'll be right back with Alex in just a moment to talk the Twenty Eighteen NBA Draft. All right, we are back now with Alex West of the Ninety Four Feet Report. Alex, how are you doing tonight? I'm good, Eric. How are you? Doing well, doing well. Uh, obviously, it's our return episode, so we want to get things, kick things back off with a bang. And obviously, the draft is coming up um, this Thursday. Um, so obviously, you are one of our experts on the draft in the on the 94 Feet Report, kind of leading our draft coverage there, which everyone has to check out at 94feetreport.com. Check out our 2018 yes. NBA Draft tab, um, especially the draft guide, which has two versions, uh, especially one that's separated by each team. Um But let's get to some questions about the draft because, you know, for some people who listen to Shelly they might not be fully comfortable with all the top prospects. And everyone has to sound like a genius when they analyze these draft draft picks um, Friday morning um, for whatever website they – whatever water cooler conversation at work, whatever website they write for, whatever. So let's start off with, you know, I guess is somewhat of a basic question in terms of what is your top five? And this is just in terms of talent, not in terms of fit for these teams that are selecting in the top five
2: yeah this is a tough one eric uh i think there are a lot of good players in this draft i think it's a little bit i i don't want to say deeper i don't even think that's the right thing to say but i do want to say that it is i think there are like six or seven guys who could come out of this draft as the best player and so putting them in order has been really hard for me um because of fit because of a whole number of other things the best guy in this draft and for some reason this person may be available at number five but the best player to me in this draft is luka Doncic, and the thing about luka is he does all the things that we want to do in the nba uh he can run the offense he is a great passer he's a great off ball uh cutter he uh, can shoot, and now his shooting has not been incredible, but he's certainly capable of stretching a defense, and he's a very smart player. Now he's fallen down draft boards, and the the consensus knock seems to be that he is not athletic for some reason. I mean, <clears throat> this is my problem with Doncic, and I didn't I didn't mean to just start and say like, hey, let's do let's talk about Luka Doncic for twenty minutes, but I think you have to talk about him because he is <clears throat> he is a phenomenal player but he's also a player that spent an entire year playing in the european leagues and while the ncaa is great we all know that the level of competition from night to night from game to game varies incredibly and luka Doncic is a 19 year old player who has dominated and played really tremendously well for real madrid this year um, they're in the spanish league finals Uh, They won the Euro cup. I mean, this is a kid who's just over and over and over has proven himself amongst the second highest level of competition. And to be at this point where we're standing on the precipice of the draft and to to think like, I heard that Doncic may not go one, which I think is crazy, uh, but he also may not go two to Sacramento. He may not go three to Atlanta. He may not go four. He may go five. Um, And to me, when you're looking at the best player in the draft and you're thinking he may go fifth, I, it's it's just bizarre. This has been one of the strangest draft seasons I can remember because of the the rise and fall of certain dudes. But for me, my number one player is Luca. Uh, after Luca, this is where I get a little unconventional because my second favorite player in this draft is Marvin Bagley, oh, and and <laughs> <laughs> and. Bagley is a positionless forward. Um, He is a guy, and I don't mean that in a good way. I mean it in a bad way. He is a dude who is not quite a good enough rebounder to be a five. He's not a rim protector. Um, But I think that at a very young age, he's shown the ability to adapt, the ability to cater his game. He added a three-point shot as the season went along. He learned to stretch himself, and he is a fantastic four Uh, Now, you're going to have to pair him with certain players. You're going to have to put a rim protector behind him. You're going to have to have a point guard that can pass him open. Uh, But Marvin Bagley is a tremendous talent with huge upside. Um, So I really think that a team that if Bagley ends up on the right team, he can be the best player in this draft. Now, he's a lot more fit dependent than the next person on the list in Jaron Jackson because Bagley needs a bunch of things to be successful and if he doesn't get those things he's probably just going to be that uh michael beasley 2010 guy who's just putting up insane numbers on a bad team but if he ends up on the right team and i think the right team in this in this field is memphis if he ends up on the right team bagley can be an absolute day one force to be reckoned with. Uh, he plays hard. He's a really smart cutter. He's fantastic in transition. And his defensive mechanics aren't awful when you talk about moving your feet, uh, containing penetration. He's not a rim protector, and I don't think he's ever going to be a rim protector. Um, but at number two, like this is a pretty, pretty damn good player uh, if you can get your hands on him. Now, I think for Atlanta, that'd be a terrible fit. Uh, and he, a lot of people have talked about how he might go to Atlanta. You need, Like I said, you need the pieces around him to make Bagley succeed. But if you have those things, I think his ceiling is, is colossal. Uh, moving on to number three, I think my third favorite player in this draft is Jaron Jackson Jr. And it's very close between Bagley and Jaron Jackson because Jackson has been impressive. He's shown him the ability to stretch the defense. He's shown amazing shot blocking instincts he blocked 4.4 shots per 40 minutes this season um now he only played 24 minutes a game and you get into this like little small sample size argument about jaron jackson but he's got great shot blocking instincts and he moves really really well defensively um i've heard sort of rumblings these low-key rumblings that some teams want to play him as a four which i think is a mistake because i think he is a small ball five um but he can fit in wherever, and I, I think that's one of the things that he has over Bagley, is whoever takes Jaron Jackson, he will be able to succeed. There's a there's a very high floor for Jaron Jackson, and his ceiling is, I think, Defensive Player of the Year good, uh, but the 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 floor is also very high. So I think Bagley might be able to swing a little bit higher if he ends up in the right situation, but I think that Jaron Jackson probably starts at a lower four, a lower floor or higher floor, excuse me. Uh, after that my number four is deandre ayton ayton is a physical specimen i think he's fantastic uh, on offense his defense is much maligned and i think totally fairly he doesn't have good defensive instincts and to me there's you know if you read ben falk a lot of clean in the glass he talks about can can do doesn't know how to do and won't do and DeAndre Ayton f- falls into all three of those categories. He, he There are some things he can't do. There are some things he won't do. And there are some things he just doesn't know how to do. And it's very hard for me to reconcile in this era where a player like Clint Capella – can get played off the floor, um, <clears throat> as we saw for stretches. Now Capella was certainly effective in the Warriors-Rockets series, but there were stretches where he couldn't stay on the floor. And to me, if Clint Capella can't stay on the floor, if Rudy Gobert can't stay on the floor, I just can't imagine a scenario where they're not putting DeAndre Ayton's man in pick and rolls all the time and just making him guard the rim, making him guard on the perimeter, making him move his feet, um, and. I just can't imagine a successful scenario. And, and that goes back to the argument. This is why I have Aiton further down, but when you talk about the Doncic versus Aiden argument, to me it's no contest. One guy fits into the mold of small ball basketball, and one guy looks like he could be played off the floor at any given moment. Um, and so my I have problems with Aiden. I'm not sure he has the drive, the desire, the the he has all the tools, but I, something is just not right for me with DeAndre Ayton. And I think that I would rather have a Marvin Bagley. I'd rather have a Jaron Jackson. I'd most definitely rather have a Luka Doncic. Uh, and that's why he slid down to four on my board. And oh. then my, my fifth pick is, Moh- is Mo Bamba. I'm not the biggest Bamba fan. I don't think he has a lot of killer instinct, but I think his physical tools are super interesting. So that's my top five.
0: Yeah. Uh, before I'll just jump in, Corey, before I think you have something to say. Um, I think this is – interesting because we talked about this early on the show and obviously, it's a discussion that almost that a lot of top analysts are having in terms of concerns about drafting a big man that just most likely won't be able to play when the small ball lineups are thrown out there. I think that you it was smart that you pointed out Capella, who you know did well in certain certain stretches of the Warriors series. Other times was thrown off of was played off the floor, um, especially because the Rockets had a really good small ball lineup in PJ Tucker. And a lot of teams don't have the good small ball lineups, but they're still going to try and find them. Um, and that's where I agree with you in terms. I think it's interesting that four of the top five. Are, are bigs, but when you when it comes down to these teams that are going to be pressed to choose between these bigs, there are I think, as you said, certain bigs that be able to play more in small ball situations than the other ones Aiton will most likely definitely be run off the floor quickly I really like Jaron Jackson I think he'll be able to hang Uh, I think Jaron Jackson is kind of like the prototype of of what the future center could be like if you're looking for a stars player at the center position that can hang in small ball lineups that can play 30 plus minutes per game in the playoffs when teams use small ball lineups more than the regular season Um, so that's what I think is interesting but Corbin i will let to uh, get you whatever you want to say
1: Oh, I appreciate it. I was going to say, first, um, former Green as well. Hello, Alex. Um, oh, hey, what Denver. up, Corbin. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Um, Again, just another uh, another shameless plug. I've just been reading that draft guide end-to-end down on my phone. It's a lot of information, people. Check it out. Um, All that being said, you hurt me to my heart when you started talking about <laughs> Andrew Aiden like that, man. Okay. I heard that.
2: <laughs> and that is very near and dear to your heart and very near and dear to you personally, just where you happen to be in the world.
1: Exactly. Of all places – I'm in Arizona, about 20 minutes away, University of Arizona, going to school there. That That's kind of that's kind of my thing. And to get the pulse of the community, you know, the Suns, we in Phoenix, we are very excited to have the chance to draft our hometown hero, DeAndre Aiden, put him right next to Devin Booker and make that Kobe Shack 2.0. And that is all we hear. And <laughs> I try to be the one troll I'll, you know, throw out in the bar every once in a while. What about Luka? And you want to see a mob? That's how you do that, all right? They really love their DeAndre Eaton, okay? With that being said, you broke it down in just a clear way. And, and you know, now it gives me um cause for pause, I like to say, because, you know, word has it that Phoenix will be going for him. Um, he already said he spent some of the finals with some of the Suns, you know, watching the game and getting together. So that seems to be a, a foregone inclusion. We'll see if there's any surprise that await us in the draft. My question, though, is – Given what you said about DeAndre and and his you know his strengths and also his weaknesses, where would you like him to see? Maybe a team that can cover up his flaws just enough. Because I can tell you right now, and you already know this, but it ain't Phoenix.
2: No, it, it's definitely not Phoenix. And and Corbin, the real problem is is I don't know that there's a team out there that can cover up in enough capacity. I think that Phoenix is a fine place for him to land. If you think that Phoenix is a middling, topping out at forty-two win team at some point in the future. Uh, he's gonna he's gonna put up numbers. He's gonna he might be the rookie of the year. He's gonna be a twenty and ten guy. Uh, he is a physical specimen and he he has this vertical gravity. He has the shooting ability that's a little bit underrated. DeAndre Ayton brings things to the floor. but it's on the defensive end where i don't I just don't know that I ever see him being a positive contributor because his instincts are bad and he's a little bit I, I, I guess like, flat-footed is not, probably not even the right word because he's shown he has great feet on the offensive end but he just doesn't know how to position himself now all of that may be able to be coached out of him and if that's the case you're looking at a tremendous tremendous player that can warp the game back towards uh big men and, and make that make sure teams have to have an Aaron Baines or a Steven Adams just to go up against DeAndre Ayton but I think that the chances that you get to that 95th percentile development with Aiden aren't very good because I just don't have a lot of dependability in his mentality. I just haven't seen a ton of things that make me believe that he's got the, the I'm ready to work every day mentality. And maybe he does. I mean, I haven't talked to him or anything like that, but that's my big concern with him.
0: All right. Well, I will get us moving again. Um, so we got you got your top five, we got some DeAndre Ayton talk. Let's talk about prospects and this could be Aiton in your book. Obviously I think it is because most people a lot of people have him at one, the Suns have him at one, um, and you have him at four, so you probably think he's a little bit overrated. But who are some other prospects that you feel are, you know, being overrated, whether that be maybe from the teams, the rumors we've heard, um, or just people, you know, NBA Twitter, analysts, um, et cetera. Give me some overrated prospects
2: and then also some underrated prospects that people are sleeping on. I've got a couple guys that scare me. and I don't know that overrated is necessarily the right word, but I had Mobamba in my top five, and I really like Mobamba. Um, but he kind of scares me a little bit because he's he's long, and obviously his length is much renowned with his six foot uh, seven foot ten wingspan at the combine. He is a guy who has tons of length, but, As I was talking to somebody earlier today, I said this, that length puts stress on all his joints, and his knees, and his elbows, and his shoulders. Um, And in order for Mohamed Bamba to be the best player he can, he's going to have to put on weight. He's very small. He's like seven feet tall. He weighs like 43 pounds or something. Don't quote me on that. But... when you have a player that's that tall and that rangy and that lengthy he's got to have he has to work on his lower body strength his lower body he just gets bulldozed by guys sometimes in college um and there were there were times in the year where um asabuki was uh, with kansas was a was a big one you know he just sort of cleared him out just got him out of the way and um i think that bomba has to work on his lower body strength and i think that probably means putting on weight and then you start to talk about a situation where, as opposed to being 225 or whatever he's listed at, he's 235, 245. And 10 more pounds on these joints can be a big deal. Uh, he's already had a foot problem. He missed a couple of games with a toe during the season. And, uh, you know, foot injuries are the death of big men. And you, you just st- sort of start to go around with Mobamba, and you see these little problems that are fixable but they're certainly scary so i'm a little bit hesitant on mo bomb as opposed to some some people have really catapulted him very high and i mean i guess i have him at fifth so he's pretty high in my book but i think that he comes with a caveat because you have to be worried about what he's going to bring to the table in terms of being an injury concern and then let me just roll that over into the next one because another guy that i'm a little bit worried about is michael porter jr um here's a player who played two and a, 2.1 games in college or whatever. <clears throat> he didn't particularly impress anyone in the sec tournament. He didn't impress anybody in the NCAA tournament. Um, and he just canceled a workout. Um, and when you sort of put all these things together, it, you would hear a narrative that would be suspect. You'd say, oh, okay, maybe he's falling off boards. Maybe you got a promise. I'm not sure what happened, but it seems to be that the opposite is happening because I heard that Michael Porter might go at two to Sacramento. I heard he could go at four to Memphis. Um, <clears throat> To me, Michael Porter is, is a really nice pick in that six, seven, eight range. Um, when you're a little less, you know, a little less sure you're going to get a franchise-altering player, you're a little bit w- more willing to take a gamble. Um, if he falls into that range, then I think he's a great pick. But if he goes two or he goes four, I'm just a little bit scared of of what how his health is with his hip injury that that may have flared up a little bit with his back injury all the things that have happened to him so those are two guys in the top 10 that i'm really looking at uh in a suspect way although i both i think they both have great tools
1: all right uh, alex I have, I have another question for you here um you've watched more college basketball games than i would even like to imagine right now <laughs> um, so i'm um, going one just from a player development side another one um, given my, my soft spot for LeBron James from a Cavs perspective. So the first one is um, just Trey Young in general. You know, people have made just a very arbitrary comparison to Steph Curry because of where he pulls up from range and, you know, some good floor ability, but also just being a great shooter. What do you think of him and where he might fall? And the second one, and this is more of an interesting one, I guess, if you were Cleveland and you were trying to convince LeBron to stay, at your pick currently, what player do you take that you think will make the most impact, you know, not only to to give LeBron cause for pause, but also in case he leaves to develop as their centerpiece moving forward.
2: That's a tough question, Corbin. Um I'm not sure that I would ever just given the way LeBron operates as a guy who kind of goes dark after the season, he doesn't really give anybody he hasn't really let anybody in. I'm not sure I would ever operate under the assumption that LeBron was coming back. Now, it's very easy for me to say that because my job's not on the line. Um but <laughs> That's really the way I think that you have to operate. You have to believe that he's probably gone if you've had any inkling of that. Now, you would probably want to do whatever you could to bring him back, but I'm not sure with the Cavs roster how much there is to bring back for him, uh, what moves you can make. If if something were to be available, and I absolutely would be making phone calls like crazy to see if I could find a deal that might interest him, maybe uh, – Uh, DeAndre Jordan. I don't know. That's a name we heard. uh, You know, there are names out there that might be enticing to LeBron, but I'm not sure that there is really anything that I would want to move eight for at that point, because there are a couple guys that are in that range that I think could be really exciting, really interesting. Um, you have Miles Bridges, who I think is a is a little bit of an underrated player. His name is just sort of falling off. I think that he has a lot of capability now. He's got to figure out if he's a three or if he's a four, and I tend to think he's a little bit more of a four, um, even though he's six six. Uh, and but then you also have guys like uh, Michael Bridges. You got Trey Young in that range. You've got Colin Sexton. I've heard Kevin Knox jumping up that high. Now I'm not that high on Knox. Um, you can see that in my rankings. I, I've got him as low as about fourteen fifteen, but. I see the appeal and so to me I think you just sort of set the groundwork for what it is going to be going forward and that would probably get me fired if I was an NBA GM. Just saying that. Just saying, like, let's operate under the assumption that LeBron is gone. But really, <laughs> really, I think it's wishful thinking at this point. You, you bring him back. You don't bring him back. But if you operate on the idea that we can – maybe we can entice LeBron to come back. Like, I think you're you're setting yourself up for failure when you could grab a player here at eight and then probably turn around, trade Kevin Love for a little bit of value, and set yourself up to compete again in a couple of seasons. Uh, it's It's been done. We've seen seen it done over and over and i think that's probably the way i want to go even though dan gilbert may not necessarily want to go that way thank you man. i appreciate that one yeah man no problem (laughs) more of a measure take (laughs) (laughs) um all right so
0: now we're gonna throw you're gonna throw you alex right into the fire here with this next question (laughs) no problem i would like to pick your brain and i want you to play 10 different roles here uh, and ask you how you see the top 10 playing out. So the first question we asked you is, what is your top five basically just in terms of talent? But now I want to ask you how you see the top 10 playing out, both in terms of the talent of the players and how they could fit. Um, and you don't have to analyze how each player fits. We don't have, you know, all data to, to talk about that. We could do a whole <laughs> other episode on that. Um, sure. But just how you see the top 10 playing out on Thursday.
2: Well, luckily, Eric, you can read what I think about a lot of the top 10 if you go to the 94feetreport.com and check out the team guides that we published. Just kidding. Uh, I had to get that plug in. Well, definitely don't <laughs> kid about that. actually do definitely go read that. <laughs> yeah, no, I actually, love go, that. Go yes. read that. But, uh, <laughs> so I think that we probably have to believe that DeAndre Ayton's going number one, regardless of what I think about him, what you think about him. Uh, Corbin loves him. I know that. But uh, regardless of that, I think we have to we have to operate under the assumption, given all the evidence that we have seen that DeAndre Ayton's going to go number one. So let's pencil that in on the board. And I kind of just want to carry Occam's razor over at number two and go, I think Sacramento's going to pick Luka Doncic. Now, they've smokescreened. They've saber rattled they've done all kinds of things to maybe entice somebody to trade up which i believe is what they're they're sort of doing right now they're, they're saying that two is available and somebody's got to come out of the woodwork and wow them with an offer uh, but i think at the end of the day it, it just makes sense to draft luka Doncic at number two which would bring us to atlanta at number three uh for me if, if i'm atlanta nope nope that's not the question it's not if i'm atlanta it's what's atlanta going to do oh. i think atlanta's going to draft uh, marvin bagley I think they should draft Jaron Jackson. I'm going to publish an article about that on Monday, but uh, I think they will draft Marvin Bagley. He's exciting. He's going to sell tickets. He's a player that, you know, it's going to move jerseys. Jackson, not quite as an exciting a player might be a better fit along particularly alongside John Collins. So I think Bagley will probably go three. And I think he'll probably be immediately out of the gate, sort of in contention for rookie of the year. If he ends up in Atlanta, because he'll just be given carte blanche to operate. Uh, And he's a guy who's going to put up numbers and, and he's going to be a, a tremendous scorer and rebounder and that kind of thing. So I think that's a good situation for his, Statistics. I don't think it's necessarily the best situation for him uh, personally in terms of his basketball growth, which would bring us to number four, which is Memphis. Um, I would say that Memphis's best decision would have been to draft Marvin Bagley. Uh, I think that's where he fits the best, but if he's off the board here, I think they probably got to just go with Jackson. He's a player who is going to be a, a contributor no matter where he ends up. And I think that that's something you got to look at if you're Memphis and I I think you probably just got to start considering tearing this uh, Gasol Conley core down, but uh, they, this is a pick that I, this in the Sacramento picker picks that I could see get moved guys. I mean, I really, really could Memphis could trade for a player who's going to contribute and get off that uh, Chandler Parsons deal. And and I think Sacramento for some unknown reason could also sort of swap that pick out. But uh, if Memphis takes this pick, I think they take Jaron Jackson. I think that Dallas takes Mo Bamba at five, uh, if, if everything just sort of plays out this way. I think Orlando takes Trey Young at six. I think Chicago takes Michael Porter Jr. at seven. Uh, and then that brings us to eight with the Cleveland Cavaliers. And I think when you look at the board, um, there's an argument to go Colin Sexton. There's an argument to go Kevin Knox here. Um, but I think you probably go with Miles Bridges out of Michigan State. Uh, I think he's got a lot of upside. And I think if – If LeBron comes back, he's a great player who's going to fit alongside LeBron and be able to stretch the floor and be able to be an off-ball cutter. Uh, If LeBron doesn't come back, he's a player that you can sort of build around for the future. Which would bring us to number nine, which is the New York Knicks. Now the Knicks are in a rough spot here. They really needed to get a playmaker. Uh, They really needed to get somebody who was going to be able to put an impact on the team, be able to play beside Porzingis. And I don't know that that dude is there. And I don't really know what direction you want to go if you're them. I think they probably would take Knox here. Um, that's not necessarily who I would take at the spot, but I think that that's the kind of player they want to pair beside Porzingis, and they. St- he could develop into a really great player. There aren't a tremendous amount of dudes who can uh, stretch the floor and be 6'9 and guard 2 through 4. And I, I don't necessarily think all of those things are great for him, but I do see the fit for him in New York. Which brings us to 10 and Philadelphia, and I think they would take Michael Bridges um, from out of villanova he's a three and d wing he's a player who's going to contribute for this roster he's going to be another robert covington he's a great catch and shoot player hyper efficient in low usage roles Uh, and he can defend he can switch um To me, this is an interesting pick for one reason. They need to find a playmaker. We saw it in the playoff series against the Celtics. This is a team that needs to find somebody who can take the ball out of Ben Simmons' hands because Ben Simmons is a really great off-ball player. Uh, He doesn't get to operate that way a lot, but we saw it in game Mm -hmm three i think the first game in philadelphia i can't remember when tj mcconnell came off the bench uh, played a little bit more of the primary ball handler role and got simmons involved in as a cutter as a post-up man doing a couple of different things and i think philly could explore an option here or they might be able to explore an option with a later pick and look at somebody like landry Shamet or maybe javon carter uh, because i think they need to add a point guard <clears throat> now that's the caveat gentlemen is saying that I think they probably moved Markel Fultz in an attempt to go after a Paul George, to go after a Kawhi Leonard, something like that. If not, they can stick with Fultz. And I think that they're going to be fine because I, I'm still pretty high on Markel Fultz.
0: Oh, Corbin, you got anything that uh, I have, I have a question. If you have nothing, but go ahead.
1: Oh, no, no. I'm. I, that was interesting. I, I didn't have a question other than that. Um, I'm just kind of shocked to see whether the sun's making about face and end up taking Doncic. Do you think that Doncic will be a perfect fit with not a perfect fit, but um, obviously a more ideal fit than Aiden. But with Josh Jackson and with Devin Booker, one thing that I've heard is that they'd be maybe too many hands on the ball. I know you could probably immediately debunk that. But what do you think about Doncic to Phoenix? Which ideally you said you want you would you'd want him to go number one. You think he's worthy of being picked
2: number one? If you gave me the Phoenix GM job tomorrow and taken Luka Doncic, um. <laughs> In, in a world where you can't really have too many guys who can handle the ball, who can play off the ball, who can shoot, and who can switch on defense, I think that that's kind of where you want to be. Uh, Doncic is a really, really tremendous passer. He's heady. He's got great basketball IQ. And I think that a lot – I was actually just, just looking at these numbers. And, um Booker's a pretty balanced score. He averaged about six points per quarter. Um, But I think if you can sort of switch gears in for stretches in like the second and fourth and let Doncic run the offense, which is something he's more than capable of, what you'll find is you have a much more explosive Devin Booker to close out halves. And I think that's super important because if you can – put him in situations. I don't want to say that he is clay Thompson because they are different sorts of players, but I think that he can play a clay Thompson type role where you take the ball out of his hands and let him operate off the ball. Let him get a couple of screens, let him uh, you know, work on some pin downs and some floppy actions, that kind of stuff. You're going to see a player who's a little bit more revitalized. Um, his conditioning didn't seem to be a problem this year, but I think that you can sort of, excuse me, you can be proactive in this situation uh, and you can, you can get the ball out of his hands a little bit more just to make him more efficient and more effective. Um, so, yeah,
0: yeah, so my, my thing my, – all oh, my question is a, a prospect or I guess two names that have been brought up for I think people are really hot and cold on. And I want to get your perspective on these two. Um, Wendell Carter and Colin Sexton. Uh, two names that I think recently Wendell Carter is someone who I, I log on to Twitter every day and one day I say I see someone who has him and they're like top eight and the next day I see people who have him below like 14th or whatever uh, and the same thing goes for Colin Sexton and I, you know I've heard a lot of people thinking that he could go to charlotte as a kind of a future kemba walker replacement when kemba walker decides that he's sick of mediocrity and won't resign with them um sorry charlotte um but (laughs) what what, i want to just want to get your perspective on those two players and then maybe if you have other names that you could be grouped into that tier of players that you know could slide into the top 10 or could fall you know into the middle of the lottery
2: Oh, I got the perfect one for you, but I'll I'll get to yours first and then we'll go into mine. But, uh, to answer your question, hot on Wendell Carter, cold on Colin Sexton. I have Wendell Carter at number seven. He does a ton of things that are really, really great and contribute to basketball. He's a, he's a rim protector. He's a tremendous secondary playmaker. He's a good passer. He's got like really innate vision, which I, I think he paired really well with Bagley, um, uh, he he had a, a lot of assists, which were entry passes to Marvin Bagley. And big-to-big big entries are this incredibly effective thing, it, it, particularly if you can run like four or five pick-and-rolls, which is something Duke kind of did from time to time through the season. Um, and Wendell Carter just became this guy who was the focal point, who played with Duval, he played with Trent, he played with um, – grayson allen and with bagley and then a little bit with uh DeLaurier. um and and bagley, bagley the, the the thing was was wendell carter was more effective when he played with bagley and and bagley was more effective when he played with delo with uh gavin delarie which is just sort of telling about who they are as as players um carter is a great team center and and i'm fantastically high on him for that reason i think that he can do a lot of things and i think that he can keep himself on the floor because of all the things that he can do and One thing he's going to have to do is he's going to have to stretch his game. He's going to have to get a little bit more effective. Um, His mechanics are good. His free throw shooting is good. Um, But I think that he could have a little bit of a problem stretching his game. And it just sort of depends on where he ends up. Uh, I think he he was like he's like a 73 three free throw shooter he's got good mechanics he he can find the range but he's gonna have to have those opportunities so i'm very high on him um and i'm a little bit lower on sexton i really like sexton's mentality i think he's a bulldog i think he comes to play every night and i love that and i also love that last year in De'Aaron fox when he came out of kentucky and the problems are a little bit the same between these two guys. I don't want to make that player comp thing. I, they're not the same guy, uh, but the the problem that Colin Sexton had is going to be similar to a problem that De'Aaron Fox had. Is he just has not been able to stretch his game, and he had he had uh, an insane usage rate while he was at Alabama this year, and he. Uh, we'll have to sort of overcome that and learn to play a little bit more off the ball and do some other things. But uh, if he can, if he can stretch his game, if he can be a catch and shoot player on kickouts and stuff, he is going to be, much, much better suited to play in the NBA. But I don't think that's a foregone conclusion. Um, He was a 33% three-point shooter. Um, He showed it at times, but it felt like it was really up and down to me. And I love De'Aaron Fox. I live on De'Aaron Fox Island, and I will go to bat for him. And so I think probably by about game 20, I'll be on Colin Sexton Island as well because he's just, like I said, like he's just ready to go to war every single night, and I love that in a player, and I love it in a point guard. Um, So I'm low on him right now, and I'm worried about him, and I'm not sure that I would take him for that reason, but at the same time, I see the good in Colin Sexton. Now, to answer your question, who do I like in this same range? The answer is Zaire Smith from Texas Tech. This kid, he is phenomenal, and I, I can't believe... We're talking about him at 14, 15. Uh, I think he just has all kinds of tools. Now he's only six, five. And I think that's something that's really held him down. He's going to be a two guard in the NBA. Um, and he was a 45% three point shooter, but don't put a ton of stock in that number. It was on 1.1 attempts per game. Um, and a lot of people are concerned about whether he will be able to stretch his game, be able to catch and shoot, particularly on like corner threes, and be able to come off screens and operate that way. But um, I really like Zaire Smith, and and I think that everything he does is conducive to winning basketball. And that's the kind of dude, if I can get him at like 11, uh, he's, he's probably – this is tough, but he's probably the best dunker in the draft. He's he's unbelievably athletic, um, and he's a great defender. He's got a strong body, and he is a really, really, really great decision maker with the ball in his hands. I think he's a very underrated passer. Um, so I, I really like Zaire Smith. I would probably take him – depending on what team I am, I, I could see myself taking him high, as high as like – seven, eight, nine, because I really like him. If I, if I were New York, I would take him. Um, and I don't think New York will, but I could, I would definitely take him if I was New York. I might take him if I was Cleveland, uh, Chicago may have other options just depend on how the top five shakes out. But I really like Zaire Smith.
1: I got one more question. If that, if that's okay, real quick, Eric
2: Yeah,
1: Alex, if you can bear with me here. Okay. So I got two more, um, two guards that I, one, I think will be drafted in the top 20, but I just want to get your thoughts on them. And the other one, uh, actually, it's kind of a joke, but I also still want to get what you think about him. One is Kyrie Thomas. Um, just your thoughts on him, and then the second is um Grayson
2: Allen. Okay, uh, Kyrie Thomas is a gamer, man. He he's the two-time Defensive Player of the Year. He is he has a Colossal 6'11 wingspan. He's 6'4". He's a high IQ player. He's fantastic in transition. But the thing that's really going to serve him well is he is long and strong. Uh, and he knows how to position his body to play defense. I think that Kyrie Thomas is a really great fit for a team like Indiana, um, who needs a, a defensive point guard to play alongside Victor Oladipo. <clears throat> I could see him going in like the late teens. I really don't see him falling past about... Uh, I could see him going as high as 17 to Milwaukee. He could definitely go 18 to San Antonio. I I just can't imagine a scenario where he goes much past 23. Um, so I think that's the range on, on Kyrie Thomas. But I could be wrong. But th- that's my opinion because I think he is a, a pretty rare breed in this draft of a guy with who's got. Again, I hate to do this, and I'm gonna do it, but he's got a lot of he's got a lot of josh richardson in his game Ooh, um like and that. and i think that that's a player that you want on your team and we've seen josh richardson develop into a quality nba player with with the ceiling that i don't think he's uh come close to yet and if you can get one in Kyrie thomas in that middle of the first round i think he's great uh to answer your second question
1: <laughs> don't show li- up on him
2: <laughs> no-, <laughs> no listen man um grayson allen is is a <laughs> This is going to be awful, but Grayson Allen is a super underrated athlete. He, he really turned some heads at the NBA combine with his box numbers, with his um, two cone drill. I mean, everything he did was just, you you just kept looking at the numbers and going, this can't be right. This can't be Grayson Allen. Um, He's a smart player. He's a crafty player. Uh, He's tenacious. He, he's going to catch on the NBA and he's going to be a good player. I mean, honestly, I thought last year he was better than Luke Kennard. So luke Kennard went 12 to the pistons whatever um but i thought grayson allen was a better player than luke Kennard. uh i think he'll probably go a little bit later because of his age limited upside but if you're getting if you're getting grayson allen at 38 39 40 i think you're getting a pretty good player who's going to be able to contribute right away
0: all right so let's do uh Let's do a question that's a little bit less about the prospects themselves, but more about these teams that are drafting. We can do one more question here. So you talked about some picks that could be on the move, and I think we should do a little bit more of a discussion on what picks could potentially be on the move. Another pick that we didn't talk about that could very likely be on the move is that Nuggets 14th pick as they look to try and shed Kenneth Reed. Um, I think that a team like the Hawks should be all over that. Um, But a team that can absorb that contract, you know, Fareed can still give you something in a vacuum. Um, especially on a team that has the money for him and you know is just bad right now um to get that extra 14th pick i think would be kind of a good idea um but so we look talk about pick two pick four grizzlies trying to shop parsons with that pick which is interesting in its own right um and then pick 14 um you know there have been some rumors that the clippers might look to try and package 12 and 13 maybe in some kind of fashion um if they really like somebody who's you know in the top seven top eight or whatever um are there any other picks that you think could be moved or picks that maybe you'd like to see move if you were a team
2: trying to either move up or move back i think that the 12 and 13 package is a little bit underwhelming i'm not sure how far up it gets you um it might get you at a seven but even then like if if chicago's in love with michael porter and he's there I, I think you sort of get in this like diminishing returns when you get to 12 and 13 uh this is this is a deep draft it's a good draft but uh, i'm not super sold on like a ton of value in those two slots so i'm not sure how far up the board they can get they'd have to find somebody who's really in love with two guys in that range um The Denver pick's really interesting to me because I think the team that needs to take that on is Sacramento. Uh, If I was Sacramento, I would call Denver and not hang up the phone until they told me they were trading me 14 and Kenneth Fareed. Uh, There's no reason for Sacramento not to. There's no reason for them not to go hunting for more draft picks. And if it means you're taking on $13.9 million of Kenneth Fareed, so be it. uh, and if if you're them that's where you start to look at a guy like like Kevin Knox if he's still there but if he's not you got Mitchell Robinson, you got Kata Bates-Diop, you got a ton of guys right in that range who can be contributors. Now, I have sources in Sacramento who have told me that the people there this has nothing to do with the organization, but the fans are really in love and enthralled by Harry Giles. uh I don't know what Harry Giles is going to do. I, I Harry Giles could be a good player, uh, but I think you just got to hedge on that a little bit and think that a guy with as many significant lower body injuries as he's had is probably going to be a little bit hobbled. Um, but the hope is high for sacramento fans and they really don't want to put anybody in the way of the growth of what harry giles can do um so we'll see how that shapes out um but i think if i'm if i'm sacramento i'm going hard after that pick when it comes to other picks that i could see get traded i could see philadelphia package 38 and 39 to jump up a little bit um if memphis wanted to sell off at 32 if dallas 33 um the 38 and 39 are good picks but if Philadelphia's in love with somebody, and like I said earlier, I think they need to go after a point guard. Like if they're in love with a Landry Schammett, I could see him trying to move up the board by packaging those two picks. Um, other than that, I, I think it's just going to depend on – what we see on draft night. I mean, last year we had the Jimmy Butler trade. Uh, I, I don't count anything out anymore. Something like that could happen. You could see the Lakers move from 25 because they're trying to make something happen on July 1st. Uh, you could see Boston move from 27. I think you could see Washington move 15 to try to bring in some help for the roster that they have currently, or you could see a move 15 in like auto Porter. If they're trying to swing something big, I, I don't, I've never haven't heard anything like that, but that's the beginning of a pretty good package if you're chasing something. So uh, everything's crazy and it can just be uh, wild at any given moment. I mean, you know, that's how the draft is, and that's why it's fun. Exactly. That's why the draft's fun. It's why free agency's fun. It's why the off season is complete
0: chaos moving forward. Um, all right. Yeah. One more question. Um, so this hot guard prospect uh where which team in the top 10 do you think is drafting Leangelo ball um actually never mind that. um so yeah all right that's gonna be all the time we have alex thank you of course for coming on the show draft oh you're preview. welcome um why don't you plug where everyone can follow you on twitter and then where they can find all of your delicious draft content
2: Absolutely. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at AlexWestNBa. West NBA. I write for the 94 feet report. Uh, and if you want to check out our draft guide, which we do players, we have on the player side. And then we also do it on the team side. We've taken two different approaches and uh, the guys that I worked with were fantastic. We had a really great year. It was a ton of work, but I think at the end of it, when I look back on it, I'm really proud of everything that sort of went into the draft guide and we didn't get quite as far as we wanted to, but I think that's just the way it goes with these projects sometimes. But Make sure and check out both of those things. Check out the team guides if you're interested in teams in particular. But if you just like to learn a little bit more about the top 15, or maybe you're really into like 23 through 30, we can help you there as well. Um, check that out. I think you'll enjoy it. You got a couple more days of the shelf life on that one. And, and then, you know, just keep up with the 94 feet report. A lot of interesting projects I know that are going on behind the scenes that we're working towards and uh, going to be putting them out soon. And I guess I don't really have to plug the site on the sites podcast but uh, I'm ex- <laughs> listen guys I'm excited there's a lot going on and I think it's going to be good you can never have too many plugs regardless of what platform we're talking about um,
0: but yeah guys you have a couple more days to become absolute experts so then when Friday when you go into work or school or whatever or whatever you write for if you, whatever you do related to the NBA you can be the expert who knows exactly about which team made the right pick and which team made the wrong pick you're only going to find out that information if you consult the 94 feet report draft guide at 94feetreport.com of course the usual spiel follow corbin and i on twitter Uh, You can follow the site on Twitter at the 94 feet report. Check out all of our stuff at 94FeetReport.com. And uh, we'll be back uh, with more regularly uh, produced episodes moving forward, especially as we enter free agency on July 1st. We'll hopefully have a a little bit of a free agency primer towards the end of June and then obviously have our free agency analysis pods in July. So follow us on Twitter for all that. Follow the site. Check out the site. Um, And we'll be back with you guys uh, sometime in the near future. Thank you.
1: All right, ciao.